This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Daniel Jose Older combines magic and music in his first novel, Half Resurrection Blues. Then PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habesh introduces some more exciting debut authors from our first fiction feature. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So the numbers are a little low on the fiction list this week. I don't want to quote specific numbers, but uh, the first debut on the list, the first book that's just come out this week that made it onto the bestseller list is at number six. It's uh, by Tess Gerritsen, and it's the latest Rizzoli and Isles book, Die Again. But it sold uh, under 9,000 copies Mm. in its first week out, and that's still enough to get to number six. So I wonder if people just aren't buying books very much this week. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, that seems, especially for a a genre uh, book, um, seems a little bit low. But... um, you're right. Maybe people aren't doing it this week. Maybe they're turning their attention elsewhere. Yeah, you know, we, we've uh, we've all spent a lot of money on holiday gifts, perhaps. Right. Uh, is time to pinch a few pennies? Anyway, this is uh, Die Again is the 11th novel featuring Rizzoli and Isles. Uh, Jane Rizzoli is the Boston police detective, and Maura Isles is a medical examiner. Uh, we called this book Spellbinding, mm. uh, and it involves a, a taxidermist and th- uh, who's murdered and the theft of a rare snow leopard pelt that he was preserving. Uh, and we say that backstory and character development are occasionally sacrificed to pacing, but Gerritsen excels at describing the harsh, often lethal majesty of the Okavango Delta in Africa mm. uh, and in this satisfying page turner that's sure to please longtime fans and right. new readers. So that's at number six. Next down at number eight, W.E.B. Griffin's The Assassination Option, uh, co-written with William E. Butterworth IV. This is the second book featuring Captain James Cronley uh, in the Clandestine Operations series. Uh, It's set just after World War II. His first assignment was relocating German officers to Argentina, Mm. uh, and now his duties have expanded, uh, and he's running the European division of the CIA. So lots of international intrigue there, um, and we say that it's a testament to the author's skill and wide experience that the pages seem to turn themselves. Fantastic. So another one for the thriller fans out there. And further on down, more thrillers, more thrillers all the time. Rain on the Dead by Jack Higgins is at number 12. Uh, This one we were not so positive about. The PW Review calls it lackluster. It is the 21st thriller in the Sean Dillon series Mm. uh, featuring a legendary ex-IRA gunman, except in this one he plays a largely supporting role. And there's uh, a lot of other stuff going on that doesn't directly concern him. Uh, We say Higgins appears to be going through the motions in this tired entry, but he still has a lot of fans. Hopefully the next installment will see a return to form. Right. 
um, and and so forth and so on. I mean that that's pretty much the story all the way down for the uh, for the fiction list. Um, lots of thrillers. I guess you know, people need to keep the blood heated during the cold season. Um, but again, the numbers are are very low. I mean, Rain on the Dead is there at number twelve. It it sold uh, just under five thousand copies. So um, and that's a Jack Higgins. And that's a Jack Higgins. I mean, for a first week, that's very low. But even, you know, all the way up at the top, um, All the Light We Cannot See is, is still at the top of the list. Um, it's been there for a while. But, uh, you know, 22,000 copies sold. I'm used to seeing much bigger numbers right. Right. around the number one spot. Right. So I, I expect it's just low sales across the board, and uh, they'll pick up as the year gets into gear. Well, in nonfiction, it's pretty much what we've discussed at the end of last year, what we might be seeing, and that is on the nonfiction list, lots of books on diet and health, New Year's resolution kinds of books. So we have all, uh, looks like I think all uh, five of our debuts uh, are about dieting. Number three, we have the Adrenal Reset Diet. It's strategically cycle carbs and proteins to lose weight, balance hormones, and move from stress to thriving. This is Alan Christensen. Uh, so that's the first one published by Harmony. Um, going down to number nine is The Burn. Why Your Scale is Stuck and What to Eat About It by Haley Pomroy also by Harmony. Going down, we have uh, Good Housekeeping uh, magazine, 400 Healthy Recipes. Uh, so it's a, a little bit of a shift, A least. little bit, exactly, a little <laughs> bit. Uh, so there's still healthy recipes, and that's what people may want after all the holiday eating, and obviously you still need to eat. Right. Um, and two more. It starts with food, and this is by Dallas and Melissa Hartwins. Um, and that's at number 16. And finally, number 20, David Zinchenko, Zero Belly Diet. Lose up to 16 pounds in 14 days. People want to get off the, 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 the fat from the holidays. So those are, those are the debut books. And looking at the list, there are a couple things that we, because uh, we were on break for a little bit. Uh, Amy Poehler's book, Yes, Please, has been on the charts for three weeks. It's now at number two. Uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly. Um, came out with uh, Killing Patton. Whenever he comes out with a book, it tops the list. Uh, yeah, that's been so, there for 15 weeks. Exactly. And and I guess something about the new year is making people want to pick up a book on uh, Patton by uh, Bill Riley. Um, so, and that's basically our nonfiction list. Well, there's uh, there's not a lot of exciting new stuff there, but uh, right. you know it 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 is very predictable. It, I I just can't get over the concept of zero belly. Yeah, um, no. <laughs> you know every, everybody needs a little bit of a right, belly. Right. <laughs> um, but I am I'm glad to see you know at least one just plain old ordinary cookbook on there. I I get I get nervous about these the, the, diet fads. This, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. But uh, you know maybe that answers the question of where people are spending their money if it's not. Uh, on the the books, it might be at the gym. Yes, well, maybe that's a good point, actually, Rose. So uh, that's what we have for this week's bestseller list, and uh, we'll keep an eye on it and see you know, what happens with fiction when people start buying again. I hadn't realized just how much of a slowdown there is at the start of the year. Yeah, uh -huh. we'll see if it jumps up next week. Yep, we'll keep an eye. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Daniel Jose Older tells us about the extraordinary adventures of New York City's ghosts. We'll be right back. 
I'm Rose Levy Berenbaum, author of The Baking Bible, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Daniel Jose Older on the line. Daniel's new book, his first novel, is Half Resurrection Blues. Hey, Daniel, so glad you could join us. Hey, very happy to be here. So, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the book, introduce us to Carlos and and to the concept of ghost noir. So, Carlos is half dead and half alive, and that puts him in the curious predicament of being able to move between the world of the dead and the world of the living. And he lives in Brooklyn, and basically uh, the Council of the Dead is this kind of nefarious bureaucracy of death that sends him off to do all their dirty work because he can be this, he can play this kind of in-betweener role and deal with living stuff when living problems happen and dead stuff when dead problems happen. Um, so he's uh, caught in between these two worlds, basically, and it, it, it has a noir feel to it in the sense of yeah, late nights, you know, drinking lots of coffee and smoking cigars and untangling complicated problems and uh, strange romances and these things. So the first thing that happens in the book uh, is that Carlos uh, is assigned to chase a person. He tracks him down and realizes that this guy he's supposed to kill, this this person who's been set up as his enemy, is also the only other in-betweener he's ever met. So tell us, tell us about that tension between target and likeness. Yeah, well, he has this moment very early on, as you say, where he realizes that suddenly the game has changed. First of all, he's not the only in-betweener that anyone's ever heard of. There's these other people around. And in the course of that playing out, he realizes that there's, in fact, even more of them. So he has this moment where he's like, wait a minute, I'm not alone. And I'm not the only person in between these two worlds. And then he has to make a decision. And then everything kind of unfolds from that decision that he makes as things start to unravel and these mysterious creatures start appearing all over um, Prospect Heights' neighborhood. And then he has to deal with the consequences of that decision. And it ultimately really asks him to make choices about his allegiances to this bureaucracy or to find out more about who he really is. So Carlos is a law enforcement officer, basically, um, also obviously a minority in more ways than one. What's it like telling that story right now and writing the sequels right now with all the tensions that are currently going on? Yeah, it's a great question because it really has come up a lot for me as as the book has been coming out. I wrote it in 2010 when these things were still going on, but less in the public eye. Um, And as it's been unfolding and then this book coming out, it's really had me think about it. And that... Especially in the sense that I, I think of a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of genre books end with the killing of a black man as the kind of saving grace. And um, mm. that's always really bothered me. And it's, it happens in books that I, that I love in other ways. And then that's, you know, this moment that it's like, why, why is that so consistent? Um, so part of writing this book was questioning that and wondering, you know, why Why did we always have that and how do we get around it? How do we think in deeper ways about how the criminal justice system functions in the city and all these different problems and concepts of, of justice in larger ways, revenge. Um, so I was thinking about all those things when I was writing the book. <laughs> I'm thinking about them even more now. And it, it's there's no easy answer. There's no answer offered up in the book except that 
taking lives is not an inconsequential thing. It's, it's often treated as, um, you know, there's, there's depth and there's consequences that are resounding throughout communities, throughout lives. And that's definitely one thing I was trying to think about with this. Was, was Carlos the character based on anyone you n- knew, say, in the neighborhood? Any uh, minority uh, law enforcement officers? Um, no, Carlos, his voice really comes from my own blog when I was writing um, about being a paramedic. So I was a paramedic for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just blog out the stories and the things that we dealt with, the different situations. And that really turned into, that was kind of a, an opening to writing fiction. So, you know, first I would just write these blogs and, and I found that it was really easy for me and that the voice was really clear and I was just writing what happened. And that's kind of like a a writer's rule, I think, that we forget sometimes because we get so caught up in saying it right and saying it in an interesting way. And starting out with a blog really taught me, like, you know, tell the story. And then things will unfold from that. Voice will unfold from that language and beauty. Um, so I started writing because of that. I started writing fiction because I realized that telling stories was, in some ways, very simple. And in other ways, you know, you could bring more depth to it that way. So, so his voice comes directly from my own experience. And so you just mentioned you were a paramedic, and, and mm-hmm. you, you were a paramedic for a while. How did you get into that, and how did it influence your writing about death and undeath? I, I, got, into, <laughs> I got into it because I needed a job. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was something that always really interested me. But I didn't know, you know, it wasn't necessarily, I, I didn't see myself as a doctor ever either. Um, but I thought it was a fascinating idea uh, to, of, a, of a job to work. And then I was finishing college. I was a social science major and music minor. And I knew that I was going <laughs> to need to pay my rent. So I took the EMT course when I was a, uh, in my last year of college. And then I came to New York and became a paramedic here. Paramedic is a higher level of training than EMT. I worked at the for a little while, became a medic. For a while, I was just doing that. I, there was a lot of creative stuff happening inside of me, but I was so focused on just being, you know, a better medic <laughs> that I didn't have a lot of time to be writing or making music. But um, eventually, that really became a lot, of the, a lot of the push behind why I write ghost stories. And a lot of the stuff that I talk about in the fiction about these kind of struggles that humans have within bureaucracies that are at their root maybe created by humans but still based in things like making money or saving face or you know all these different bureaucratic things that aren't actually about human life but here we are on this line of life and death so as paramedics you know we were always conscious and aware of that being on that line being between life and death and being between humanity and bureaucracy and that's always been a fascinating tension for me. So it just naturally unrolled, unraveled into fiction. So um, the first time I encountered Carlos was in some of the stories in your collection, Salsa Nocturna. Um, mm-hmm. How did writing a novel compare with writing those stories? Well, Salsa Nocturna it really helped me understand how a novel functions because it's interconnected short stories. Um, so I just at first just started out writing short stories, and they kept ending in these ways that uh, left a lot of room to wonder what happened next. And I, I like that in a short story personally because it makes you feel like it's part of a larger world and part of a larger life, and that feels true because we never really end stories, right? Um, 
but I, I realized as I was writing them that there was there were different arcs that were going through them. There were different characters that would show up again, and beyond that, there were ideas that would grow. So that excited me, and I realized that that was really um, a way to think about the larger arc of a novel, of a longer piece. And then on a smaller level, a micro level, it made me understand how a scene functions much more clearly because when you're thinking about a short story, you're, you're still dealing with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you're still dealing with these arcs and these different turning points that happen. And sort of focusing on that and starting with that as a concept, it makes you realize when you're working in the novel form, uh, you're still putting together short stories. You're still taking these moments of crisis and layering them in increasing intensity on top of each other to reach this one larger climactic event. And uh, obviously with the titles, music is very important to your work. You have Resurrection Blues. The series is called Bone Street Rumba. You have the Salsa Nocturna, uh, which is, I'm told, not about salsa, the food. <laughs> it's not a good book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get asked that a lot. I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and, and you said you're also a musician. You're a composer, performer. You have a band. How do you integrate music into your writing? Um, well, on the most basic level, I always listen to music when I write. And sometimes finding that right piece of music is the difference between spinning out a thousand words that will stay, and, you know, words that work, and just sitting there blankly. <laughs> right. When you don't catch that. To me, writing is so much about flow, and I mean the process of writing. Um, and I can tell when I sit down and it's there. And a lot of that has to do with picking the right music. <laughs> um, on another level... I, I started studying music seriously back in college from a place of understanding the limitations of the written word. Um, I've always written and I've always loved writing, um, but I was becoming really aware of these places, these deeper moments that you can't touch with writing, that are much larger than words. And I felt like, and I feel like still, music is a way to, to touch on those. Not to explain them or define them, but to reach them on some emotional level. So that was my entrance point into music, into learning um, the fundamentals of music. And I studied um, music in Havana, where my family's from. And, uh, you know, I went deep on that level. And then returning to writing was coming from a place of wondering, in part, well, first of all, I was trying to make money, too, because <laughs> as a musician, I wasn't making money. I was, I was working a lot, working for choreographers and puppeteers and uh, scoring pieces. But um, I wasn't surviving. I was surviving from the ambulance. So in part of trying to work my way off the ambulance, I started writing novels, which I know, why would anyone ever <laughs> write novels <laughs> to make money? That does sound absurd, unless you know how hard it is to make money as a musician. <laughs> right. Um, but some people can do it, which is amazing. But I, I, as a writer now, I hear music and I think, my God, like, can I ever, can we as writers ever reach some of that amazingness that, you know, like Jimi Hendrix gets to, or Radiohead, or John Coltrane, when they just hit that certain moment, and it's like perfection. And I know as a writer that, no, I can't get there. But I know that just in inspiring, you know, in moving in that direction and reaching for that, I find something new that I've been looking for that I couldn't really, wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. So I, I think of music like that, like it's this unattainable kind of, place, this aesthetic that is bigger than words, but their words themselves get better when they try to reach for that impossible thing. Mm. 
I, I want to ask another question about music. You've just listed a couple of what seems to be inspirations for you, all very different, Coltrane, Radiohead, uh, but, but also the titles of your books are Rumba, Salsa, you have blues yeah. in there, but uh, the music you create, uh, and, and you said you're from your family's from Cuba. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to be uh, the blues, the rumba, the salsa, all kind of music that is indigenous to a uh, to a culture to that was formed um, within these countries. What what is the music you create? And what is what is the significance of these uh, th- this kinds of music to your books to your writing? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. And um, so my mom is Cuban, my dad is Jewish, and I and I love drawing from the different cultures and kind of throwing them together, but also doing it with intentionality and thinking about what you know what is the meaning behind that and where do those musics come from, where do those cultures come from. Um, I think that, uh, that when I was writing music for choreographers and when I was writing more instrumental tracks, I would do a lot of that. So there it would there would be a kind of underlying beat, and then I would. I would grab some of this and some of that and put it together. Um, and, and again, I would do it from, I've done a lot of research, so I'd be thinking about how these different pieces are in conversation with each other rather than just kind of being scattered in willy-nilly. And I, I'm really always conscious of what's the story being told, even if it's by the rhythm and by the melody. You know, where, where is the narrative bringing us? Where is the tension? Where is the release? Where are all these parts of it coming together? Um, but I love, <laughs> for instance, I love the idea. There's there's a concept in Cuban music called the montuno, which is at the end of like a bolero. Say a bolero will be a, a ballad, uh, you know, a, sometimes a slower song telling a love story, and then there'll be this moment where all the musicians just completely go nuts, and the chorus will come in repeating something over and over, and the um, soloists will take solos, and there'll be a conversation between the trumpet and the guitar or the guido. All these different things are happening. And it's it's like an explosion. And to me, it always reminds me of the climax of a novel. All these different elements come into play. You know, the Battle of Five Armies. All these things are happening at once. And it really is this, like, explosion of energy. Um, so I think, I think about those things. And you know, mm. I think about the way that there'll be a, a tension in the dominant fifth chord that will you'll want it to resolve into that one, that moment when the song ends. And some songs don't land back on the one. And sometimes... Right. That's exactly the kind of beautiful, painful kind of ambiguity that we need. And sometimes it really does need to land back on that one, and that's where it goes. And so it's always a conversation kind of back and forth between the words on the page and the sounds of my ears. And are there writers who you feel have been able to create or put into their books that kind of rhythm? Um that you read or that you've read or that you might have been inspired by? Definitely. Um, Nalo Hopkinson comes to mind as a writer who's very rhythmic and just very musical. Um, Juno Diaz, mm-hmm. Walter Mosley. Those are the ones that jump to mind. Um, that you read it and you're like, it feels like, I think there's a, a lot of connection between the musicality of writing and the spoken word. So right. those writers that feel like, they're just sitting across from you at a coffee shop talking to you or at a bar sometimes, um, you know, whispering or yelling in your ear <laughs> or telling you some story, but there's that familiarity. And I love feeling that in a piece in, in writing when it's like there's, there's a certain intimacy. So even though the writer is speaking to millions of people across the world, they're still somehow just talking to you. And to me, there's a, there's, that really goes back to how much musicality there is in how we speak to each other just as human beings. 
uh, one of my biggest inspirations is the art of storytelling, period, uh, beyond writers and the written word. Paramedics tell great stories. I mean, <laughs> people say, oh, you must have great stories from being a paramedic, and I absolutely do. But uh, what they miss is that a lot of the inspiration that I got from being a medic was the way that we told each other stories. And they were hilarious, and they were messed up, and we're laughing, and it's about people <laughs> in some of their worst moments. And it's not about heartlessness. It's really about finding, you know, some of, of the light within all that messiness. Um, but there's also just a power to the spoken word and to the way that um, people speak to each other and the call and response and the converse, conversatory aspect of it. That's all very powerful. And I think it's easy to get lost, to lose that when we transform stories to the page because it's the page. So we're sort of alone, you know, the idea of the writer all alone in our rooms um, when really we're having this much larger conversation. So I try to remember that when I write. I try to write in a way that, that, that speaks to that spoken word and, and conversatory aspect of storytelling. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Daniel Jose Older, who's the author of Half Resurrection Blues, who's just talking about uh, a performative aspect to his writing. And uh, Daniel, you've also recorded the audiobooks of your own work, which I have to say was a relief for me because I can only ever hear it in your voice now that I've heard you <laughs> perform it. So I'm glad I wouldn't have to try and imagine anyone else speaking these words. But what was it like for you? It was really fun. Um, I mean, like I was just talking about with the with the word, I, I feel like the spoken word brings the written word to life on another level. It puts a new fire into it. And so saying it out loud, um, you know, even in this weird little enclosed sound booth, um, just made me think about it in a whole new way. Even words that I've said many times before, I would read my pieces aloud before I submit them. Um, and, I, and, I, and I do a lot of performances. Um, let me plug real quick, too. Tomorrow at the New Eurekan at 7 o'clock, we're having a, a book release party for Half Resurrection Blues, and my band is playing, and I'll be reading aloud. Ashley Ford, the great essayist and poet, um, will be hosting, and it's going to be amazing. Uh, it's actually going to be today for the people who are listening to this on Friday, since this is going to go up Friday yeah. afternoon. Friday, 7 o'clock at the New Eurekan. The New Eurekan Poets Cafe is an amazing place. It's on 3rd Street between B&C and Alphabet City, Manhattan. And... Um, yeah, I, I just have found that there is a magic to actually putting out loud words to the to the words on the page. That it's always been a transformative transformative experience. On the other hand, it's always a little bit like no matter how many times you've edited a piece and you've read it out loud a million times, by the time it goes into print, um, you still find mistakes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you still beat yourself up a little bit. Like I'm not too much of a um, of a detail oriented perfectionist when it comes to particularities like that but it's still like you read it out loud and you're like wait I, 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 can i just change that jaron you know <laughs> but you know you, you, you have to let go at some point so half res isn't your only book coming out this year tell us about shadow shaper your first young adult novel 
Yes, Shadow Shaper is actually the first book that I wrote, um, although it's become something completely different since I sat down to write it back in 2009. But I really did. I was reading a lot of Harry Potter, and I love Harry Potter. And I also felt a disconnect, and I really wanted to think about what would this be like, you know, if it, if it was centered on people of color, if it was in Brooklyn, um, if the magic was not a Eurocentric magic that just harkened back to Eurocentric medieval folktales. Um, because there's so much richness in our communities. There's so much mythology and history and memory and all these elements that folks don't get to see in mainstream traditional fantasy and sci-fi and YA. So that, that's really what I sat down, you know, in, in thinking about and wanting to write a great book and a great story and create great characters. Um, so it's about a girl, Sierra Santiago, who taps into a magic that is part of her family history that had been concealed from her that involves uh, bringing the painting murals that she puts on walls to life mm. with spirits. And there's an anthropologist from Colombia who gets involved and it gets messy and there's this hot Haitian dude that she gets involved with and there's a love interest and all these things. So, you know, it's a story, it's, a, it's a, uh, an adventure and it's about counter narratives and it's about magic and art and the power of art and culture. And it's about Brooklyn. Did you have fun writing about Brooklyn? Oh, man, I had such a great time. <laughs> I would do, and I, I believe in um, the power of world building, even if it's the world that we live in, but with some magical twists and turns or some ghosts walking around. I do think that, that creating context is one of our one of our best tools as writers you know the ability to really talk about power in a multi-layered and complicated way lies in how we build those worlds around our characters and when you think about this city i mean this city in particular but really any city it's a crossroads there is so much happening every time you walk down the street there are signs of the city and the way it's changing and the forms of oppression and empowerment that are at play and everything you know and so it's like when you don't tap into that why, why wouldn't you you know there's so much to say and when you use it as the setting as the context around the story it's possible to do it in a way where you're not banging people over the head with it where it's because the truth is it really is a part of people's daily lives um the way that gentrification affects things police brutality these are these are daily life things um that that sometimes explode and sometimes simmer um, but they're a reality. Mm. So I, I, I find that writing about it in a way that, that's, that brings it naturally into the narrative uh, speaks to a certain truth that's often missing. And you, you're talking about bringing reality into your, to your fiction, yet you also write essays on reality, on topics like race and power. How did that side of your career develop? Um. You know, an essay, would, I would be writing a book, and an essay will happen inside of me, and I'll have to write it, or I will be banging my head against the keyboard. <laughs> and I, I, I struggle with nonfiction. I, I love to write it, but it doesn't, it rarely flows out of me in the same way that fiction does. Uh, when I'm rolling on a novel, I can just sit down and write often. Not all the time, but generally. But with nonfiction and with essays, oof, it's like pulling every sentence out from my throat, <laughs> one word at a time, sometimes one letter at a time. But um, there are certain things that I'll um, experience or analyze in my head over and over or go through, you know, or see. And 
the way that they want to come out of me is is in the nonfiction, straightforward essay saying exactly what I see and and taking it apart piece by piece and putting it back together. Um, I, I love the essay form for its ability to be so emotional and so political at the same time in a in a very particular way. Um, and I love essays like Ashley Ford, like Saeed Jones, um, Kiesi Lehman, who write these amazing pieces about being alive and connect that and bridge their experiences in life to these larger questions that we ask as a culture and these questions about power, about gender and race. Um, but it's a, it's a way of humanizing that conversation and not making it just in the academic realm, but making it about what we live, you know, as people in the world. So that, that to me has been the power of the essay is reading essays like that, reading Baldwin, Hooks, and understanding what, what an essay can do and then just sort of groping at that. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but ultimately it's about there are just some things that need to be said straightforward. And there are other things that I think do well to be kind of coded into the mythology of fiction. You had written a piece, I'm thinking of one in particular that you had contributed to BuzzFeed, and it was on diversity in publishing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is a topic that we had talked about. Uh, we had our uh, two of our editors on staff uh, talk to us about an issue we had in the magazine on diversity in publishing. Can you tell us your your thoughts on that, your experiences perhaps? Yeah, where to begin though? <laughs> uh, let's talk about, topic. I think you had said something in the article you had written that you didn't know uh, a person of color in uh, the book publishing world until, I think it said your current agent or something? Um, no, that's not exactly true. I mean, I, I think I was talking about just dealing with the fact head on, you know, that there are so few people of color in the industry mm-hmm. um, and that it is so extremely white that that's an issue that we need to talk about with a lot of honesty and with a lot of vulnerability. And that's sort of what I think is often missing from the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the repercussions of that, both on how the industry looks from the outside, so what books are published, how they're published, what the covers look like, um, and what it looks like from the inside in the sense of what are the conversations happening within the industry as far as in, you know, in the boardrooms, but also what are writers of color um, and and uh, it's really not, diversity isn't just about race, um, but definitely writers of color, um, trans people, LGBTQ folks, uh, people with different abilities. You know what is going on with us as far as like, are we self-censoring? Are we telling our truest story, or are we being careful because we know that the gatekeepers who are ultimately going to be in charge of deciding whether or not our book gets out into the world? are largely white and often straight and functioning within a very particular patriarchy and gender binary. So the question I have and the question I think we all need to ask ourselves at all levels of the industry is, first of all, how do we break through this situation as it is? Because it's not a, it's not a fair situation, it's not equitable, it's not right to have such a heavily imbalanced industry of, full of whiteness and white culture. And second of all, being that that's what it is right now, how do we confront it in real-world ways? As writers, how do we make sure that our truest and most authentic voices and stories are getting out there? And as agents and editors <laughs> and publishers, how do, how, do, how do those folks play a role in it? Because they do play a big role. Um, but often they're the last people that we hear from. Now, there's amazing folks, and I've been really blessed to work with them, that are 
you know, saying brave and powerful things and doing good work. But the majority of the industry, you don't hear a lot about it, you know. So it's great that we're having this conversation, that we're talking about diversity. I want us to go deeper and talk about power, talk about race and power and gender and power. How do those things really affect things as far as uh, forms of censorship that are happening? Because folks love to cry censorship when they're called out, you know, for being oppressive. But let's talk about the kinds of censorship that happens without ever even a word going back and forth. But the the forms of censorship that basically mean people aren't even bothering to put their true stories out there because a lot of times they know or they assume that they won't be greeted with friendly faces because it is calling into question the very uh, supremacies that we're dealing with. Um, Rose Lemberg recently launched a big discussion about this uh, under yes, the hashtag don't self-reject. Uh, thank you. I was trying to remember what the hashtag was. Yeah, it's it was. Because uh, that, that, was, that was a big conversation, um, which I was participating in also because right now I'm writing a book about a queer transgender hero. And it's a romance novel. I'm thinking no romance publisher is ever going to touch this. So I, right. I, I definitely I feel that feeling of why should I even bother at, at the same time that I feel the urge to write this story, which is a story I know pretty intimately from my own life. Right. Um, right. So do you have, uh, as someone who, who's clearly pushed past that, you know, now two books out, uh, also you and I edited an anthology together, you've got another mm-hmm. novel coming out soon. Um, do you have any advice for writers who are struggling with this particular kind of self-rejection? Um, don't do it. It's my best <laughs> advice. And I know that I don't say that thinking that it's as simple as just me saying it and so people won't. Um, but someone asked me recently what I would, I think it was on the Reddit I did, the AMA. Someone mm-hmm. asked me what I would do differently, what advice I would give to my younger self as a writer, mm-hmm. knowing now what I know. And I, I would I would tell people that, and I would tell myself, you know, that that there are those people in the industry and that the, the, the our job is to find them and it's not a fair thing it's not it shouldn't be that we have to struggle with these conversations you know you shouldn't have to ask yourself all those questions um but use that as part of the inspiration to both make the work truer and more you know heartbreaking and difficult and beautiful and also use it as your fire to find the right people, the people that will truly uplift your voice and, you know, and not try to make a simplistic commodity out of it and not reject it because it's too raw, um, you know, not try to mold it into what they think it's supposed to be. Um, but, I, you know, I heard so many horror stories because every writer of color will tell you some really messed up things that happened to them in the industry. And so I was like pretty much assuming that I wouldn't find anybody uh, because of all the painful things that have happened to us in the past. Um, but I did find really good people, um, both agents and editors. And I think knowing that, you know, I, I, I want people to know that that's possible. One, two, I think don't ever let anyone tell you what your path to success is, what success means, because it's so individual. And especially now, now more than ever, Writers have unprecedented access to audiences. We have the ability to reach thousands and thousands of people now in ways that we hadn't ever before. Um, And self-publishing is a whole other thing now than it's ever been, and it's always changing. Uh, And small presses are doing their thing in ways that they never have before. So there are these, you know, at the basicest, most basic level, there are three 
different paths as far as bigger houses and independent presses and self-publishing. But even within that and in between, there's so much space to do different things and there's ways that we haven't even thought of yet. Um, so the game is changing and I think approach it, approach publishing and marketing and all these different levels with the same creativity that you approach the written word and storytelling so that it doesn't feel like, ah, this is just something I have to do to survive. You know, as a writer, I know I'm supposed to do this. No, come at it with, you know, with excitement. And that's not an easy thing. Uh, But I think when that clicks, when there's a moment for a lot of writers when, when we're like, okay, my career is also a creative expression of myself and how I put myself out there in the world is also a part of how I tell stories and who I am as a writer and an artist. Um, and that's actually a really exciting thing, and it's a great thing, and, and you know, it's inspiring. So that should push us forward. Uh, we don't have to be trapped by these uh, ridiculous hierarchies of the past and of the present. Uh, we can push past it. So it, it requires us to be courageous and ridiculous and outrageous in how we do everything. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> It's very inspiring. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking with Daniel Jose Older, and you can find his book, Have Resurrection Blues, in stores right now. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Gabe Habash introduces some more exciting debut authors for our first fiction feature, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Joanne Bourne. I'm the author of Rogue Spy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash is here to tell us all about PW's first fiction feature. Hi, Gabe. Hi, guys. So we do this every year, but you said this year is something special. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so this is um, something we do twice a year. It covers six months each. So these are the debut novels that we think are going to be promising or going to be big in the first six months of 2015. Um, and we did actually a few more books. We have nine books, which is a little bit more than we, what we normally do because the, the selection was just so impressive. So I've been doing this for a few seasons now, and this is the best selection, I think, out of, out of any that we've done. Great. So impressive in in what sense? What makes these particularly outstanding books? Well, it's like I said, there were just so many books to consider to begin with, and we ended up getting a really diverse selection of books. Um, I mean, we have have every type of fiction that you could imagine. We have stories, and we have novels, and we have, um, you know, pretty challenging books. We have um, sci-fi books. We have thrillers um we have everything so it's that's that's what we try to go for is just try to get the best books but but to try to get a variety also and it was it was pretty pretty good job this time now most of these in first fiction uh younger authors or do you get some authors who are maybe in mid-career maybe have written non-fiction or poetry before but this happens to be their first novel yeah we have we have a mixture i mean we have some people who are pretty young and you know in their 20s and then we have some people who have written other forms we have a poet this time um we have a former literary editor for harper's who's been around the block obviously um but yeah i mean again they're just coming from all these different places so you get a wide variety of of books 
So hit the highlights for us. What are a couple of the, the outstanding books among the outstanding books? Uh, first, we have Rebecca Dinerstein, um, and her book is called The Sunlit Night. And that comes out in June, but um, we got galleys for that really early. And uh, her publisher is really getting behind it. It's sort of um, a love story set at the top of the world is the sort of pitch for it. And it takes place in a Arctic archipelago named Lofoten. And it sort of takes two characters. Um, the first is a recent college graduate named Frances. And she has just suf- suffered some heartbreak. And she goes to an artist colony. And there she meets um, a Brighton Beach Russian immigrant uh, named Yasha. And so it's just sort of two different worlds coming together. And mm-hmm. it's just a really well-told, sharp, funny book. Cool. That sounds very interesting. So I, not necessarily what one would classify as a as a romance in the genre sense, but right. certainly with a romantic aspect to it. Right. And what, what makes it so interesting is the alternating viewpoints. They're just so different to switch between Francis and Yasha. And uh, I believe that... Um, Dinerstein's agent compared the voice of Francis, coincidentally, to um, Francis Ha, the recent film with, uh, I'm blanking on her name, uh, but the Noah Baumbach film mm-hmm. from 2012 mm-hmm. or so. Right. Um, and she's just very sharp. And then you switch to Yasha's perspective, and he's the immigrant. And um, he's going there for a very different reason. He's going there to bury his father. And it's just more somber. And just the 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 contrast between the two voices is just really, really spectacular. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Very cool. So what else do you have? Uh, so next we have Hausfrau, which is uh, the German word for housewife. Um, that's the title of the book. It's by Jill Alexander Esbaum, who is a poet. Um, and this one is a pretty easy sell. And uh, it's basically a modern updating and homage to uh Madame Bovary and Anna mm. Karenina, and uh, there the the, ec- the the echoes between this book and those books is very obvious. The main character's name is Anna. Um, you know, she's we we talked to her for the piece, and she said it's not Flaubert 2.0, and it's but it's a tribute. And you mm-hmm. know, she said, what better book is there to tribute than Madame Bovary and Anna Karenina? And it takes place in Zurich, mm. um, and I just think it's a really clever updating of that story because um whereas in those past books those classics the the discontent of uh anna and uh madame bovary is sort of um a result of social limitations and this one uh anna in housefrau is sort of suffering from discontent because of her own doing and so it's just as this really smart um take on an old story Mm. When we were talking uh, earlier about this, uh, we had asked what what might be some connections between all of these books. And you had said nothing obvious, but there was something that that you felt connected. And I I feel that might be, uh, this book might be an example. Right. Yeah. So I think that, again, we have a really wide variety of books, but I do think that there's a lot of um, challenging subject matter in this selection and I think it's what makes them interesting is they are sort of out to push your buttons and uh, make you think and um, you know in Housefrau there's you know Infidelity Mm. and um, Sunlit Sunlit Night the book I just mentioned has um, you know a lot of grief and loss and um, actually ties into the next book which is 
uh, Binary Star by Sarah Gerard, and that is a that's a very um, both from subject matter standpoint and from a structural standpoint, it's very challenging because while it's very short, there's a lot of blank pages in the book, or there's very short chapters, and the plot of the book is a basically a doomed road trip between mm. a young couple. The the woman is suffering from anorexia, and the the man is suffering from alcoholism, and it's just this sort of um, really sharp uh, take on the road trip novel. Mm. But it's I mean it's not the most fun book to read, but I, it does bring up some some challenging subject matter at the same time, and it's definitely worth reading. So it seems that some of these novels have uh, we've you know we've always talked about with much of first fiction that's kind of you know, autobiographical elements to them, and it seems like in some of these that not necessarily so. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that there is some some autobiographical detail, but um, obviously Jill Alexander Asbaum is not a discontent. Uh, housewife in Zurich, mm-hmm. um, you know she's she's a successful poet, um, but there is some there is some uh, autobiographical detail for sure. I mean, Sarah Gerard, the author of Binary Star, which has a protagonist who's suffering from anorexia, uh, she Sarah Gerard actually wrote uh, an essay for the New York Times a few years back about her experiences with anorexia mm-hmm. and bulimia, and she sort of got such a reception from that piece that it inspired her to write the book. Right. Um, so you can definitely see glimmers of authors working through their own um, conflicts in their right. own lives and their fiction. Right. Which always, you know, leads to good stuff. Yeah. So is there yeah. anyone else who's being um, structurally experimentational? Yeah, actually. Uh, we do have um, the book that I mentioned earlier from the former Harper's literary editor. His name is Ben Metcalf. Mm-hmm. And his book is called Against the Country. And this book is uh, super weird, and uh, it's going to be pretty divisive. Uh, I've seen some early reviews. I believe it came out this week, or it's coming out next week. It's it's this month, um, and I saw a review that sort of uh, sort of tore it down as nonsense. But uh, we at PW love it, yeah. And I think for the right type of reader, um, it's just even it's not it's we even admitted in our review that it's largely plotless i mean there's a section called i feared the corn that's about corn there's an (laughs) appendix on dogs that's just a listing of dogs and what happened to them that the owner had during his life it's i mean we said it was largely plotless if there is a plot it's about this boys uh growing up in uh goochland county virginia which is a real place i looked it up uh it's actually a census designated place i believe is its technical um name Mm -hmm. and it's in virginia has a population of like 860 60 people since the last census Mm -hmm. and uh it's just sort of this southern novel but it's not really a novel it's but what sets it apart from uh just being experimental is the language it's just unlike anything i've ever seen in my life and uh even if you can't really get into it from a plot standpoint i think that anybody who has an appreciation of language is just going to be uh floored by this book Hmm. um and you know it's it's written in very short chapters and um it's sort of a book that you read you know a few pages of you can't sort of sit down and just absorb it because it's so he just has like a a rhythm and uh cadence to the prose that doesn't really exist 
anywhere else. Wow. Oh, that's pretty remarkable. And usually I would expect that from, for example, the poets. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking there's a, there's a relatively new online zine that's been making waves among my friends called Lackingtons, which mm-hmm. is specifically for mm. prose with a poetic sensibility. Right. So it sounds like this uh, might fall more into that category. Right. Yeah. And he talked about in our, in our first fiction piece, you know, he had this Harper's literary job for a number of years and he worked with Alice Mon- people like Alice Monroe mm-hmm. and John Updike. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of, this sort of like cultivated his love of language and how it would get down to something as minute as like the placement of a comma in a sentence. And, He's just been sort of tearing this book down and rebuilding it for, I think, close to a decade is how long he's been working on it. Wow. No so, kidding. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, yeah, the last book that I wanted to bring up in this brief overview, and then we'll just sort of run through the last few ones, I guess, sure. is um, it's called Making Nice. And this is one of my personal favorites. Um, I think it's the funniest book of the year, even though the year just started. Um, but it's going to be tough for anything to top it. It's a novel in stories. Um, it's by Matt Summel, and it's all these sort of like vignettes about this sort of troubled man-child named Albie who um, gets in fights and can't really seem to figure out his life. It all takes place, all the stories sort of take place uh, after his mother dies and he's sort of lost in a drift. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's the the voice is what makes it so funny. It's his it's first person and um, he's crass and goofy and it's it's just hilarious oh and i know you like humor i do yeah so i mean the 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 quickest way that i could sort of pitch it whether you think you this would be the book for you or not is there's one story where he finds a a baby bird and he names it gary and uh he thinks it's a falcon and it turns out to be a female cardinal and he tries to train it to be a falcon can I swear on the radio? Uh, we'd rather you didn't. Okay. The, the FCC would rather you yeah. didn't. Okay. Um, then I'll leave off the quote, um, <laughs> but he he tries to train the the cardinal to be like a falcon and bite people in a certain region <laughs> that uh, is painful, and he sh- does that by showing it nature videos. <laughs> so that's the... That's one of the stories. I actually love your description of it. Gabe. Yeah, I tried to. I tried <laughs> to go great. around the. Uh, the no, 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 no. <laughs> it's your delivery yeah. of it. It's fantastic. But yeah, I'd that's read a, it. that's a great book, and that great. comes out in February. It's okay, called Making good. Nice. So, um, give us a, just a very quick list of the rest, and obviously, people can pick up the next issue of PW and read the feature to yeah, get all so the details. The remaining books are The Turner House by Angela Flournoy mm-hmm. and that's about that's a sort of uh, family generational epic set in Detroit's east side and the centerpiece is a crumbling mansion or a crumbling house. Um, then there is The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins which is a sort of riff on Rear Window about a woman who's riding her train mm-hmm. home and sees something that is uh probably something really bad right um then we have the sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen and that is a it's it's a spy novel it's um a book about the Vietnam war from the Vietnam perspective uh and it's also a voice driven novel it's first person and um lastly we have Mort by Robert Rapino which is a sci-fi book and it's a sort of modern take on um Animal Farm with uh, sentient animals and uprisings and that type of thing. 
Wow, fantastic! All sounds good. It really sounds does like a sound nice range. It does sound deep too. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a it's it's really strong, and I think anybody who likes fiction is going to find something to love here. Well, the interesting thing will be to follow these books through the year and see whether maybe some of them end up on our year's best list. Yeah, I'm sure some of them will. <laughs> great. Keep an eye out. Well, thank you so much, Gabe. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Gabe. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Ilyasa Shabazz, who's the author of X, a novel. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 